Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. You know, we are in the midst of a... uh sermon series on uh, heaven and hell. Uh, We're calling it YOLO and uh, you only live once. Uh, Not really. Truth of the matter is you live twice. And what we've been doing is ask, ask and answering the question, you know, what's life like after death? Particularly for the believer. First Sunday we looked at what life was like for the unbeliever. Uh, But now we're looking at what life is like for the believer. That's what we're fully intending to uh, talk about today until I woke up. And to be honest, you know, this hadn't happened that often. And I don't know that there's been too many times I've actually done it. But about 6 o'clock this morning, I just had uh, this impression uh, from God, I think, and God said, hey, that, that sermon can wait. Heaven can wait. I want you to talk to the fathers today. I want you to talk to the grandfathers today. And so from about uh, 6 to 7.30, I put together what I'm about to share. Now you might be saying, well, shoot, you could go part-time. Well, only, <laughs> only when God helps uh, that much. But you know what? Let's, let's just think about it. I mean, if ever there was a time when our country is in a mess and we as believers who believe the Bible, who trust in the Word of God, who understand uh, life from a biblical standpoint, we know the obvious answer, or at least part of the obvious answer. Uh, It may not be all that politically correct, but to be honest, the most important element in fixing our society actually rests with the people we're trying to honor today, the fathers. Not that mothers are not important. Mothers are extremely important, you know, as important, if you will. But the truth of the matter is, I think, I think there is something about a man in his child's life or a grandpa in his grandchildren's life that is just... I mean, it's magic. It is so powerful. It is so divine. And, and, you know, I I sit and I think about us in our role as as fathers and grandfathers, and I just think, man, we've got to step it up. Truth of the matter is our, our, our country, our society, our culture really is circling the drain. I mean, and there's so much that is going on. And if anyone needs to take initiative, it would be us men. It's us men that need to step up and be what I believe God calls us to be. And you know what I honestly think as I think about us as a group, because we're, we're, we're not your typical subset. I, I think almost every one of us here today we understand that, and we know that, and, and we want to be that. And, uh, and uh, 
you know, uh, the females among us want to affirm us in that role. And we want to affirm the moms and the females among us in their role. We want to do it. But probably one of the problems that we face, or at least one of the challenges we face, is we don't necessarily have the, 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 the tracks to run on. Because the, the world is such a mess. And when you, when you watch what's going on out there, it's like, where do I start to untangle this mess? You know, my dad loved to fish, and he took us fishing all the time. And, uh, uh, you know, I failed in that. I never, I don't think I hardly ever took Jonathan or George fishing at all, uh, even though I think they both actually like it now. But uh, I remember as a kid going fishing with my dad, and we'd use one of those open rills, uh, Shows you how little I even picked up about fishing. But, I mean, in no time at all, you know, as a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, I'd look down, and my line was just a mess. It was just a mess. And, and my dad would look at me, and, you know, he had, he had great patience because he loved to fish. And he would sometimes untangle it, and sometimes he'd just clip it and retie it. And I was always amazed that he could tie it, and it would stay together. I'd tie it, and you know, it'd come apart, but he knew how to do it. I think it was because he was a sailor, too. But, uh, you know, that's beside the point. I mean, if anything, our society, it's that, that tangled mess of fishing line. You've seen that. And it's like, how do you fix that? And so we who, who want to be good parents, want to be good fathers, want to be good grandfathers, want to be good mothers, want to be good grandmas... I mean, we look at it, it's like, how in the world do you untangle this thing? You know, and if you're not there yet, you look at it and it's like, is there any way that I'm ever going to be able to have a kid and raise a kid and that kid is going to come out normal? Because we don't even know what normal is anymore. It is such a, a, a chaotic mess that we're in. And it seems like it's just come down in the last five, six years. You know, obviously it's been brewing for longer than that, but man, where in the world did this mess come from? And so what tracks do I run on? Can, can you just give me three things to, to, to say, to work on, and, and go back and say, okay, these are the three cylinders I want to fire in this engine I'm calling. And, and that's really what I want to do today. Is I, I just want to share with you, as I, as I sat and I prayed about what would God want me to share this morning for both men and women? I mean, what is it that God, what, what are the things we need to focus on to help this generation that's coming up that we're privileged enough to be a little bit further ahead of and reach back into? Whether we're 25 and we're reaching into the life of an eight-year-old or whether we're 65 and reaching into the life of a 20-year-old or a 50 or a 40-year-old. I, I came up with three things that I want to share with you. And, and I think, you know, honestly, I think they're worth writing down just so you can think about them. Um, and I basically kind of give, I'm going to give them to you in reverse order. But so that when they ultimately appear all the way on the screen, it's really more like a building where the foundation and then the things above it. So here's, here's the first thing. If I, if I think that a godly Christian father 
could focus on something. A godly Christian grandfather could focus on something, a mother and a grandma, and just a significant adult in the life of kids could focus on. You know, one of the things I think this society, this culture in particular, needs, they need to remember a biblical worth ethic. I mean, it's, as I look at it, we don't know how to work. We don't know how to work. We, we, we've kind of got this, this, this mentality that, you know, people owe us something and, and we're entitled to something. And, and we see it all the time. And, and we're like, why, are, why do they think that? Why do these folks that are younger than us just think somebody ought to give them something? Why didn't anyone teach them? Well, who's supposed to teach them? It's that person in the mirror. It's you. It's me. If you, wanna, if you want to, to, I think, be a, a biblical father, a biblical grandfather, a biblical mother, grandmother, a biblical aunt, or just a, another person in the, a child's life, one of the most important things I think you could teach them is a biblical work ethic. Now, we could go to a lot of passages, but I just want to take you to one in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3. So open your Bible or use your phone, if you will. Go to 2 Thessalonians 3. Now, interestingly, the tail end of 1 Thessalonians and the, pretty much the whole brunt of 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians are these letters that Paul wrote to this church in Thessalonica and the primary topic for the last of 1 Thessalonians and pretty much all of 2 Thessalonians is the second coming of Christ. And you know, you may not understand the history or remember the history, but I mean, particularly over the last couple hundred years, as people have gotten more and more excited about the return of Christ, there have been so many illustrations of, uh, of almost like cult-like groups that got so excited about Jesus coming, he's going to come on this date, and so they sold everything, they, they lived loose, and they just got ready, and guess what? Jesus didn't come, and just so totally irresponsible these communes, these societies, and that. And there's, church history is filled with all kinds of stuff, particularly here in North America over the last uh, couple hundred years. It's evidently that was going on in, in Thessalonica. When Paul told them about how Jesus was going to come back, I mean, they were like, well, then why do I need to work? I mean, get the credit card, let's max it out, let's live high. You know, because, shoot, I'm, I'm out of here. And somebody else can pay the freight. They, they almost seemed like they adopted that mentality. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul had to deal with that. So look at verse 6. And I'm just going to read through parts of this just to illustrate this biblical work ethic that I think we need to help people see. He says, now we command you, brethren... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. Now, what we're going to find out is this unruly life that isn't according to the, to the principles or traditions that Paul and his companions had taught them, 
particularly had to do with work. These people didn't know how to go out and make a buck so they could buy groceries to put them on their table to feed their kids. They didn't know how to go out and do stuff, and they never, they never caught the cause and effect relationship between work and money. Look at verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we didn't act as undiscip- in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Some of you are probably saying, man, where, where in the world could we find a preacher like that? That's, that's, that's the kind of guy we want to get. Uh, don't have to pay him. But basically what Paul was saying is, I didn't take any of your money. You guys were so immature, you didn't recognize that as a servant of God, you should be providing for me. Because I realized that would be a stumbling block to you. So that's what Paul's talking about there. Not because we do not have the right to this verse in ten, uh, 9. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Now, we could keep going, but Paul, like Paul does here, but I think you get the drift. There is a biblical work ethic. There is a biblical cause and effect relationship between work and money. And as I look at society, it ain't getting it. But what's even worse is even in our little Christian subculture, it ain't necessarily getting it. Okay, I've had seven kids go to college. Seventh one has just finished her freshman year of college. So I've had six kids go to college, graduate from college. And one of the benefits of, of that experience is when their kids go to college, they kind of get a friend group. And if you really want to stay engaged with your kids, you kind of learn their friend group. And so, you know, with each one of our kids, you know, I can't remember their names now, but as they were going through college, I remembered their friend group, you know, five, six guys or girls that they knew and kind of interesting it, it, it's like some of those kids that they befriended smart kids really smart kids getting presidential scholarship getting this and this and this but you know as I watched those six kids go through college and watched their friend groups go through college so I've, I've had kind of a front row seat to see you know 30 some kids going through college, my six, plus all their friends. You know what the number one thing was to success? It wasn't their ACT score. It wasn't their SAT score. It wasn't the color of their eyes or the color of their skin. It really even wasn't, you know, what part of the country they came from or what their daddy did for a living or their mama did for a living. You know what the number one thing was that I saw in those 30 kids? The difference between success and failure? Their work ethic. How they approached it. And and the reason college was such a wonderful experience or a, a wonderful measure was because they were away from home. Finally, they didn't have to do their homework. Finally, they didn't have to make their bed. Finally, they didn't have to wash their clothes. Finally, they didn't have to do anything except their homework, their studies, 
And I mean, I'll tell you what, in that group of 30 that I got to watch up close, I mean, I saw some smart kids, 34, 35, 36 on the ACT. And you know what? When college was done, they had a job that they could have got out of high school. I mean, it was like they never understood the cause and effect between work and money. And, you know, and I could sit and armchair quarterback how they were raised and all that stuff. But all I can say is there was something missing. And if I was to put a big label on it, I'd say they missed the biblical work ethic. They missed what the scriptures teach us about making a living. Now, I want to emphasize that word biblical because you may not have a biblical work ethic. I, I know that when I started off, I don't think I had a biblical work ethic. Boy, that's a lot of stuff. I'm, you know, like I didn't brush my teeth and I still got the oatmeal in there or something. But you know what? One of my jobs, one of your jobs, whether you're a father, grandfather, mother, grandmother, aunt, uncle, you know, just a single person in the life of other kids, one of our jobs is to learn what is that biblical work ethic? What, what was it that Paul was talking about here? And, and in the Proverbs are filled with it and lots of other passages are filled with it. Get that biblical work ethic and get it into your life and then give it to your kids and give it to your grandkids and give it to the kids in this church that you have an impact on even though you have no blood in common with them. Because I'll tell you what, there are kids today growing up that might be brilliant and yet they're going to be on in the category of having to have society help them out. And rather than being shining stars for the cause of Christ, they're almost like, sounds terrible to say, but let's just be blunt. I didn't have time to manuscript this and come up with nice words. But, you know, they're going to be parasites on society. That's not the way a Christian, uh, a Christian person should be, a believer in Jesus Christ. We need to contribute to society. We need to contribute to the economy. We need to contribute to, to the welfare of our economy, to work hard. Let me ask you, your kids, your grandkids, the kids that you have a, an opportunity to influence, whether you've got blood in common with them or not, are, are they seen in you and are you, as opportunity presents itself, teaching them to work as God would have them to work? You know, as, as, as my dad used to say, work as unto the Lord. Whatever your hand finds it to do, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 31. Whatever your hand finds it to do, do it with all your might and with all your strength unto the glory of God. That's the first thing I think that we need to, to have. That's a track to run on. What do I do with my kids? What do I teach them? What should I focus on? You know, it isn't just reading, writing, and arithmetic. I think probably more important, which will involve those things, is teach them to work 
like God wanted them to work. Isn't it amazing when you go to Genesis 2? God gave Adam a job before he even gave him a wife. He wanted him to be productive and produce as he should. Not be a workaholic, not be to the farthest other extreme, but to have that, that responsibility to provide and to contribute as opposed to take. You know what else? Let me give you a second track to, follow, to walk on. Here's the second one. You need to teach your kids, particularly your sons, to pursue purity. And again, boy, if ever there is an area of life that is really circling the tank as far as biblical uh, a biblical approach to it, it's the whole area of purity. Well, who's going to teach them to be pure? Who's going to inspire them towards purity? It's supposed to be us. It's supposed to be us dads. It's supposed to be us grandpas. It's supposed to be us moms. It's supposed to be us grandmas or nanas. You, you aunts and uncles. You, you, you people in the church who, who look at you know, my grandkids and other people's grandkids and say, I want to inspire them. Inspire them towards godly, personal purity. You're in 2 Thessalonians. Go back over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And again, we could go to a lot of passages. But let me just go to this one. We'll start in verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that's just a huge three dollar word that basically means your personal holiness your your living out a christ-like life for this is the will of god your sanctification that is let me get specific paul says that you abstain from sexual immorality that you each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. There's kind of a, a, a debate, interpretive debate. What does the word vessel mean? Is that referring to our body or is that referring to our spouse? And it's kind of a six of one, half a dozen the other, but the truth of the matter is whatever it's saying and not saying, the truth is both of them are true. It's just we're not exactly sure what Paul had in mind when he wrote it there. But the point is, is God is calling us to sexual purity. Verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man tra transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. God's calling us to sexual purity. And again, just in the last few years, my goodness, that, that, that tangled web has just gotten huge. And it's like, where in the world do you even begin to untangle it? I mean, you, as a man or a woman, 
who has a, a measure of influence in a child's life, whether it's because they're your child or your grandchild or just you know them, you've got such an opportunity, we have such an opportunity to teach them purity, to, to model for them what God says about sexual immorality or, 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 no, not model this sexual immorality. I misspoke, okay? Like I said, I, you know, haven't had quite as much preparation today. To model sexual purity. Yeah, there I go. Yeah. You know, it, it, write this down. If you're writing these things down, and I think you should, but if you're writing these down, write this one down. It's not, I didn't have time to get it onto a, a slide. Purity is the pathway to intimacy. Purity is the pathway to intimacy. You know, in my years of ministry, Vicki and I together, we have done a lot of marriage counseling. And uh, I, I, I would bet that almost every person here who's been married will tell you that intimacy problems whether it's, you know, physical intimacy or just even that emotional intimacy, almost always have been challenged because of impurity. Whether it's pornography, whether it's, you know, immoral thoughts about someone else, whether it's that lust, whether it's, it's previous relationships that you didn't get over, uh, it's that impurity that challenges our intimacy as a husband and wife. Isn't that true? You don't have to put your hand up or shake your head, yes. But I'll bet, that, I'll bet you find that true. When you and your spouse have had challenges in that area, and it's like it's just not there, and it's like, what's the problem? Probably, I would bet almost all the time, it is impurity it is it is a violation of these verses that are there you know okay money problems can do it bad work experiences can do it and all that stuff but the thing that does it the most is the fact that we're we're succumbing to this sex saturated society where pornography is that you know the touch of a finger and uh, immorality is everywhere our entertainment industry is is out there and it's like nobody's standing up and saying the emperor has no clothes and 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 we are we're living in this this mess and who's going to stand up and say that's wrong who's going to tell our 10-year-olds that's not the way a man should act. That's not the way a woman should act. You know who it is? It's you. It's you as their dad, as their mom, as their grandpa, as their grandma, as a, a, another adult in the church who, who can model this purity. Purity is the pathway to intimacy. I mean, those of you that are yet to be married, whether you're 15 or 35. Let me tell you, you want a good relationship with your spouse, and I'm telling you, you do want it. Okay? You do want it. You know how you get it? You don't get it from some manual. 
that you buy at a bookstore or some website you find on, on, on the internet. You know how you get it? You get it by embracing purity. Purity is the pathway to intimacy. And who's supposed to teach that? I mean, it is all throughout Scripture. We went to just one passage. We could have gone to 30 passages. God calls his people to, to shine as pure lights. I mean, do your kids a favor and teach them to walk in purity. Teach them to develop that muscle of, of, of uh, controlling the godly desires of their heart, but God has provided them where God has provided them the, an outlet in marriage for those desires to be totally fulfilled, but not until and not anywhere else. Teach your kids purity. You know, Grandpa, Grandma, you have such an impact on those kids just in, in showing them this is what a 50-year marriage can look like. It can be great. Because you are modeling for them. You're down the road, and God has, has given you an opportunity and a responsibility to model that purity and that, that wholesome, godly, biblical perspective on this area that our, our culture is just totally whacked out about. One more thing I want to give you. I've given you a track about work. I've given you a track about purity. I want to give you another one. And, and really, like I said, I'm giving them to you kind of in reverse order of, of importance. Not that these two aren't important, but here's the next one that is really the most important thing. And it's really the foundation of it all. It is your walk. It is your relationship with Jesus Christ. It, turn over with me to Philippians 3. And while you're doing there, let me doing that, let me let me just talk to you a bit about this. I mean, have you talked to your kids about their relationship with Christ? Have you talked to them about heaven and hell? I mean, here I'm doing these sermons and you know, I'm last couple weeks ago I described what hell is like. What hell is like for what what life after death is like for someone who has not trusted Jesus Christ as personal savior. I mean, I think any kid that's listening to that, if they're paying attention, is like, shoot, I don't want that. I mean, I've tried to give you some opportunities to talk to them. Have you talked to them if you're their parent or grandparent or significant in their life? You want to talk to them about having a faith-based relationship with Jesus Christ. And you say, I don't know how to do that. Well, then learn how to do that. I'd be happy to teach you. Come to one of those seminars that I offer occasionally about how to share the gospel. I mean, you want to lead these children to Jesus Christ and faith and trust in him so that they do have a relationship with him, so, so that instead of being an old creation, they become a new creation. And the old things start passing away, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You want them to be prepared to stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a follower of Jesus Christ. But... But look what the Apostle Paul says here in Philippians 3. This is that passage, and I bet you're familiar with it. At least I hope you are. If not, you should really read the whole thing through here. Paul is in this section where he's telling the Philippians just how great he is. 
you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was this and this and this. I got this law degree and that law degree, and I studied under this incredible law professor and all those things. And then you get down to uh, verse 7. He says, but whatever those things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. I think the Greek word technically, if we had the guts to translate it, that all those things counted as crap for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of their surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all these things and count them but rubbish. That's another word that's the equivalent of crap, but probably I'd definitely lose my job if I said that. In order that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then in verse 10, and this is the one you ought to really underline, know, think about, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformed to his death, in order that I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But this one thing I do, I forget what's behind and I press towards that mark that lies ahead. Verse 14, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's describing there? He's saying, I, I'm saved. I'm a believer. My ticket's punched. Jesus did it for me. I'm in. But he's saying, that's not where my life ended. That's where my life began. And I pursue this relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, are you pursuing it? Are you pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, is that the bottom line of your life? I mean, way too often we get sidetracked and we pursue this, that, something else, whether it's career success, financial success, you know, social success, some other thing. The thing that ought to be most important in your life, in my life, as a believer, as a child of God, is developing that intimacy with Jesus Christ, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, get conformed to his image. That, that's your number one job. That's my number one job. You know, we look at the kids and we say, they ought to be doing that. Well, who's going to teach them? That's us. But you know what? You can't teach something that you don't know. And when you start teaching something that you're not practicing, you're a hypocrite. 
So what's the solution? Shut up? No, it's fixed the problem. The messenger needs to be authentic and pursue Jesus Christ. And you're honest about it. Hey, I'm not all the way there, but boy, I wish I was there. And son, you need to come along. Grandson, you need to come along. I mean, these kids, you know, we all, we've all seen those statistics that are just terrible of kids that grow up in churches just like ours or all the other churches along Moore's Lane. And they leave, they go to A&M, they go to UT, they go to Arkansas, they go to John Brown, pick your college, and they walk away from the faith. Why did they walk away from the faith? Well, it could be because they were never saved in the first place, which is tragic. But I bet many of the times, it's, they never caught it, this passion for pursuing Jesus. And they're never going to get that passion for pursuing Jesus if we're constantly being a, an obstacle in their life of someone who doesn't have it. The most significant people in my life, none of them are pursuing it. Why should I pursue it? They're pursuing sex. They're pursuing money. They're pursuing a career. They're pursuing, you know, societal promotion. I mean, what are you pursuing? What do you want your kids to pursue? Yeah, you want them to get a good grade on the ACT. You want some scholarship money. But you know what you better want the most? Is that that kid has a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. And it would help if you had that passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, look, go back and look at verse 10. Does that describe you? That I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and the, be made conformable to his death. I mean, do your kids, do your grandkids know that the most important thing that you want for them is to know Jesus Christ. To, to walk with him and relate with him. That you're willing to lay aside anything and everything else for the cause of Christ. Do they know that about you? That would be the greatest gift any of us could give to a child. Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you passionately pursuing him? You know, this morning, doing this, this was not intended to be any kind of a guilt trip. What I really wanted to do today was to just give you three areas to hit. To say, what do I do with my kids? What do I do with my grandkids? What, you know, what can I do? I see all these kids in this church and how could I help them? Model and talk about, as you're able, a godly work ethic, purity, and a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. If you do those three things, God will use you, and God will bless you, and, and future generations will rise up and call you blessed. You can't go wrong telling people to walk with Jesus Christ and obey him when it comes to purity and work.
Let's pray. Father, I uh, just want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk practically today about what we as adults need to do to help uh, the generations below us. And Father, I, I pray for two things. I pray that we would start pursuing these three things ourselves and becoming even more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in each one of these areas. And then, Father, I pray that you would help us to take advantage of the opportunities that you give us, whether it's our kid or our grandkid or some other kid, whether it's a teenager or a 20-something, a 30-something, when, when we have that opportunity to speak truth, I pray, Father, we'd step up and speak that truth. Father, I pray today that if there's someone here that does not even know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, as they've been hearing us, Father, I pray that today they would trust in Him, the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. And so, Father, uh, I pray that today you might stir that one or two's heart to, to trust in the one who came to save them. Thanks, Father, for uh, time uh, just thinking about your word. In Jesus' name.